Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. My guest today, Claire Sestanovich, is the author of Objects of Desire, the hottest short story collection of the summer. We had a wide-ranging conversation about the fascinating women who populate her collection— We discussed the difference between entitlement and want, the meaningfulness of a cohesive narrative thread for short story collections, on not going to the cinema, the influence of working for the nation's premier literary magazine, and so much more. Objects of Desire will renew your sense of the American short story as an innovative, meaningful form. I'm excited to share our interview. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burn by Books. It is my pleasure to welcome Claire Sestanovich to the show. Claire is the author of the story collection Objects of Desire, which Dana Spiota called a mesmerizing, exquisite debut. Claire is an editor at The New Yorker, and she has previously published stories with The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Harper's, and Electric Literature. The stories of Objects of Desire ask a fundamental question. What precisely are the limits to what we can aspire to in our lives, our loves, and for our day-to-day satisfactions with life? Claire's characters and narrators are very aware of these limits, which often feel to them as durable and tangible as load-bearing walls, as they attempt to navigate their desires large and small. Each story focuses in on a crucial turning point in the life of a woman of a certain age as she explores the potential of her particular circumstances, a teen burgeoning into adolescence with few guardrails and a few too many family secrets, a 20-something imagining the fixtures of adulthood and sure of nothing except her general dissatisfaction with the men in her life. 
or a woman facing the closing decades of her life at the very moment that her son embodies the potential of youth with its idealism for love and companionship. These lives defined by small, intimate moments and by decisions that seem incidental, but which will mark these women in unanticipated ways. While the plotted action of these stories has real momentum, what makes this collection extraordinary is the way in which we are invited to know another person deeply and intimately, if only for a brief time. When Val, the 20-something of the story, wants and needs, grows confused between her desire for companionship and a taboo desire for her, quote, sort of stepbrother, we feel her loneliness as intertwined with our own. When a woman recently abandoned by her boyfriend takes on the impossible job of nannying for a celebrity's child, we understand her predicament as but a sliver of a life just beginning to be imagined. The women and objects of desire are both utterly distinct, oddballs full of ill-conceived plans and poorly executed revenges, and familiar because we are allowed to sit with them in their quietest moments. The writing in this collection is utterly alive. Claire is a master of the thunderclap turn of phrase. Ordinary objects are twisted inside out so that we see them anew. The pleasure with which she plays with language is passed to us like a beautifully gift-wrapped package that contains a cup full of blood. There are no misses in this collection, only new chances to be less alone in the company of her imagination. Welcome to Burn by Books, Claire. Thank you so much. What a lovely intro. Would you start off by reading the opening section of the story, Now You Know?, Yes, I will dive right in. While she followed the recipe on the side of the Wheaties box, my grandmother told me about my grandfather's infidelities. He was in the next room, but he was nearly deaf, and she didn't bother to lower her voice. This is important, she said, smashing the cereal with a chicken mallet until the counter was covered in fine brown powder. I was 12 years old, but already it had been decided that I was the keeper of secrets. There were not many good listeners in my family. They liked to yell, even when they weren't angry, as if the volume itself were invigorating. And though in one another they considered silence suspect, in me they considered it a kind of rare treasure. To tell me something, they told themselves, was an investment. One day she'll write a book about it, my grandmother said, with pride. She's a smart kind of quiet, my aunt agreed. They speculated about whether I would be an artist or a professor, mysterious, impressive jobs that they knew nothing about. They worried constantly about money and promised me that by the time I grew up, there wouldn't be anything to worry about. None of this made sense to me. I kept my secrets to myself, the only reliable way, I thought, to make them disappear. But my relatives believed in a different magic. If their own errors could be the kindling for my success, if an ugly story could become fearsome, undefinable art, then at last it would have nothing to do with them. My aunt told me about the hitchhiker she had fallen in love with, had never really fallen out of love with. My uncle told me how he got the ugly burns all over his back. He refused to take his shirt off, even in the ocean, and the nightmares he'd had ever since. My cousin, an electrician in Santa Clara, told me how many women he'd seduced while their husbands weren't home. My other cousin said that seduction was a generous word for it. He's our step-cousin, the real cousin assured me. My niece, who in our knotted family tree was older than me, 
called me each time she got a new kind of high. Don't ever do what I'm doing, she said. Thank you so much. Um, this is one of my favorite stories in the collection. And the opening line really dropped me the first time I read it. Wheaties plus grandparent infidelity definitely lands with impact. <laughs> Your play with language generates a wonderful mixture of the everyday with frequent electric disruptions. For example, Georgia from Security Questions unfurls her braid, quote, her hair is kinked all over. She brushes it again and again until it is alive with electricity, until it radiate outs in all directions, quivering with static, the ridges throwing light in all directions for no one else to see. Or there's, quote, lipstick, the color of an open wound. Do you start writing with the inspiration of a vivid imagistic line like these? Or do you have a full sense of the character before you begin to write a story, finding those lines later in the process? Um, it is definitely true that images very frequently, if not exactly unlock a story for me, are the most generative place to start. And it's something I didn't really realize about my process until I was asked about it, which is, you know, sort of one of the strange features of publication. Um, you know, an intensely private thing suddenly becomes public and habits that uh, were just once habits. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> things I did alone at my desk are suddenly practices, um, a very daunting word. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit like an, in childhood when you discover there's some locution your parents use that means nothing to anybody else. Um, but images, um, images are extremely generative places to begin. And, and some of that truly is a matter of habit. Um, you know, when I was writing some of my earliest stories, um, long before the stories that are in this book, uh, I, I had a sort of crisis of confidence and felt that, um, you know, actual narrative was always eluding me. And I, I was sort of writing the same hackneyed thing again and again. And, and there was a stretch where I actually just sort of stopped writing anything that would have, you know, purported to be a story in the conventional sense and just had a sort of daily practice of, of writing images. And mm -hmm. that was, you know, mm -hmm. I think I even had a images dot doc, um, <laughs> that was a collection of, of nothing more remarkable than that, you know, except, except, totally remarkable, at least to me, you know, it was whatever had been left in my mind on, on one day or another. And I think I actually did at, at times return to that file for, for something akin to inspiration, but it, it is something that has stuck with me in, in a different way now that I am very concertedly writing stories. And, and I think it's because, you know, a, a way of sort of to inhabit somebody's way of seeing ha seems to me often the most reliable conduit to accessing their their way of being. Um, so even if it, I'm not writing a, a first-person story as, as the one I just read from is, you know, it does to feel so crucial to inhabit the, you know, visual and tactile and physical world that these characters are moving around in. Um, and, and part of that is a little bit of, I have a kind of ethos of dailiness that the things one care, you know, the thing, the things one does, but also the things one's characters do just on a daily basis are effectively 
who you are or who mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I find it just the best way to immerse myself in a story. And so I guess I assume, and, and I could very well be wrong, that it's also the best way to immerse readers in the story. Um, and, and I guess I'll also just note that to me, it feels this sort of type of attunement and, and, and commitment to observation, I suppose we could call it, feels like part of the cultivation of a writerly practice, not just the, the execution of it. And it's sort of one of the most pleasurable aspects of writing to me is the, is the putting of um, an image or a feeling into words. And, and part of that is there's, there's an endless feedback loop, you know, as you look at things differently in an effort to be able to describe them. And then in turn, you know, the act of description starts to shape your active perception out in the world. It does, you know, there are times, I would say with some regularity where I am just out in the world quite far from my computer or any particular story. And there is a way that the immersion very simply in the visual world feels like a part of writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that very much. Um, so this is a collection of stories that is largely about the lives of women. And the women who populate these stories are, for the most part, leading pretty ordinary lives. What distinguishes them is their unwillingness to abide by the rules that tacitly determine how women should see and feel the world around them. They desire more than what the world appears ready to give. That desire reads as transgressive. Do you think about your women characters as rebelling by simply wanting something more? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, You know, it's interesting when you say um, want more than is given, you know, one one word we have for that is entitlement. Another very (laughs) another very different word we have for that is ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, another, you know, yet another is just passion. Um, and they are, you know, three terms with quite different connotations that code for sort of more and less sympathetic orientations toward the world. Yes, and I yeah. actually, it occurs to me that the overlap between them is something I, I think is, I'm in one way or another exploring in these stories, or I feel quite interested in, in their potential overlap. Um, a lot of the women in these stories, as I think about them, are they're quite confused or, or in some capacity uncertain. And I think that that makes them not entirely intuitive as rebels. But I, but I like this idea. And, and part of what it makes me wonder is if there's a way in which they're rebelling to some extent against their own expectations or, you know, societal expectations that become... Um, you know, grafted onto personal expectations in ways that we find hard to parse. You know, in one of these stories, um, a story called Old Hope, there's a character that begins, sort of strikes up a suggestive, somewhat ambiguous correspondence with her old high school teacher. And she's meanwhile involved in an equally ambivalent friendship with, you know, a, a not quite platonic friendship. And there, I thought of this story because there is something transgressive about these gestures she's making, albeit tentatively. And you sort of sense that she's testing the limits of something. Um, although I think um, she's a character who might struggle to define exactly what that something is. Um, and it's sort of... Um, the risk entailed is it's maybe a half risk. It's 
she hasn't quite committed to it because there is some deep sense of ambivalence, which which I think of as as you know I think is an ambivalence a lot of characters here share. Um, but there's something holding her back, and what is that something? You know, well, it could be as we learn certain formative cruel lessons, you know, about whether she can trust other people, or it might be, you know, more simply some fear about whether she can trust herself. And so I, I think the the allure of overt rebellion is is very real for a lot of these women. And the um, the possibility of transgression feels like, you know, the possibility of launching a truly original narrative or, you know, kind of somehow facilitating that transformation of being a character in your own plot to, you know, becoming the author of your own story and, and taking on the attendant authority of that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also something, you know, there's overt rebellion and then there's also invisible constraint. And I do think that is sort of the, you know, the dialectic that that these characters are very caught in. You know, they like the idea that they might be rebels. And are they ready to actually be rebels? Hard to say. So is it possible that the missing term in that list of things that equal wanting more is um, is feminism? And then what you suggest about the the somewhat arbitrary societal limits on what someone can desire for themselves uh, is um, the thing that drives some of your characters to imagine lives different for themselves. Yeah. um, Yes. It's interesting to think about uh, which characters in this book might um, readily or less readily embrace the feminist um, label. They certainly all ought to. Um, you know, it is, these are 11 stories about women, um, which I didn't exactly set out to do and doesn't exactly mean that it's an accident that I did. Um, <laughs> you know, in, um, in my own life, there are occasions when it feels as though the fact of being a woman is the defining and determining fact of my life. And there are countless other moments where that fact or that feeling, um, you know, are not at all at the front of my mind. And I think that dissonance is quite interesting and is something that I imagine a number of women in these stories um, share and, and is part of what I am trying to, to excavate about them. Um, and and often, you know, I think at least for some of the older women um, in the stories, there is, I think we see them in moments where the reckoning of, or, or the realization of the ways in which, um, you know, societal forces have had uh, bearing on on the arc of their lives become quite uncomfortably legible in a way they've managed to avoid for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think there are women here who imagine themselves to be sort of exempt from those forces, and in various different ways are are coming up against them as barriers. That's really nicely said. And I and I do think it's interesting to imagine which of these characters would embrace that term because, uh, yeah, it would be very different um, from character to character. Yeah. As, 
as um as the many meanings of desire uh you know uh, elucidate themselves in your collection i think of sexual desire as as maybe the most elusive um it often sits at the periphery of a character's life um even when they're involved in an intimate relationship the eponymous story of the collection objects of desire introduces us to lenora previously involved with julian who's an up-and-coming political star and now attached to john a rather uncool musician lately interested in public protests. Lenora's lingering interest in Julian appears to be more about the way in which he presents as self-satisfied at home in his success. Do your characters sometimes confuse sexual desire or attraction with a more profound desire to be satisfied with their lives in their own skins? Yes, I mean, desire is is confusion um, <laughs> by another name. Um you know, there there's one way of thinking and writing about sex in which it's, you know, largely a matter of navigating the relationship to other people's bodies, which it, it irrefutably is. And I think what's particularly interesting to me and, and really especially urgent for a lot of the characters in the book, though, is, you know, the way that sex is, of course, also a matter of navigating the relationship to your own body. Um and there are, you know, a, a number of these characters are, are, are in different ways, sort of both physical and existential, trying to figure out how to contain things. You know, it, in an early draft of, of, of the book, there were too many mentions of Tupperware, um, <laughs> how literal it can be. Um, but, but, you know, it's also a existential question because our bodies are our containers, effectively. They don't often feel like it, you know stuff spills out of us or wants to spill out of us. Um, we wish we were bigger. We wish we were smaller. I mean, it can, in the sort of old fashioned dualist way, seem totally preposterous that our bodies are meant to contain something like the mind or the self. Um, but, and part of what that sort of preposterousness does become or can become, I think, existential crisis. But there are also all these other moments where we just sort of keep the fact of it at bay, you know, embodiment, as you're saying, with the way that sexual desire can be kept at an arm's length, you know, embodiment is something that um, is inescapable and yet which you can also go through an entire day essentially not thinking about um, to greater and lesser mm -hmm. degrees, depending on who you are. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm drawn to moments where embodiment is no longer escapable. Um, and, and sex is, is a moment like that. Um, and, and I think there are also others that sort of function similarly in this story. So there's, there's one story that ends with, um, an incident of lice, um, and the lice has this very reductive, you know, almost essentializing force on the characters. Um, the story is, uh, it's about an open marriage and, and the characters, um, so, which is to say it's a story that is, um, has to be about sex in, in some sort of very logistical, obvious ways. And the characters take a real sort of pride in the emotional complexity of, of that arrangement of the openness. And they sort of conceive of it as a, almost a type of maturity. Mm -hmm. And actually that maturity masks a huge amount of messiness, um, or we could say sort of, you know, non-containment. And then suddenly at the end of the story, there are these bugs and the bugs 
you know, they literally eat your body. They, they're not quite a memento mori, but you know, they're a reminder, I think of the, you know, futility of our intellectual efforts to outpace our body, to contain our body, to ignore our body. Um, and, and so, you know, the moment with the lice is, you know, it's a moment where you can't, you, you just want your scalp to go away. Um, you want to get rid of your hair. And, and there is this deep discomfort that I think is part of, I think is maybe part of why um, desire and physicality are, are kept in some ways at a safe remove for a lot of these characters and, and also why when they do come up against them quite abruptly, they, they are so revelatory. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the other thing that the bugs do is they're, you know, they're parasites and cast in, in the least generous light, you know, a number of the characters in, in this book might be read as parasitic, you know, they're using each other, they're getting something from each other. Um, but I think in a larger way, you know, kind of the work of calibrating that ratio of, of giving and getting, um, you know, that's just a formula for intimacy. And that's mm -hmm. somebody mm -hmm. with any type of desire um, ends up having to navigate. And, and this story about the open marriage, you know, the, the sort of math of that ratio is, has to be made more overt. Um, but I think it's a, it's a balance. It's a, you know, ledger of sorts that we're all in a more, you know, daily mundane way also having to, to deal with. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the body insists on that balance, you know, in a way that, that the mind doesn't always. I didn't think about it when I was actually reading it, but hearing you, you know, detail the many meanings of the fleas, <laughs> I was thinking that you're you're doing a, a you know a retake on the John Donne uh, poem, mm. and thinking instead of you know the the flea bite as the marriage bed, the you know fleas as the kind of open marriage uh, you know wound, you share this intimacy, and sometimes it's bugs eating you and sometimes it's shared <laughs> uh shared fluids and you're an open container but i i really love it as a remaking of the of the john dunn um, yes. Yes, yes, yes so and you know i was trying when i finished your collection i i was really blown away by it and i thought there's there's something new happening um and that you know if i had read the description of it uh, you know, just standing alone and not read it, I would have, you know, maybe thought it was going to be very similar to a lot of collections that I'd read over the years. But I've been trying to pinpoint about what particular was different in my reading experience. And I've sort of narrowed it down to the way that you seem to weave away from climactic action. At one point in the story, Old Hope, your character deletes an email from her former English teacher that promises to be a revelation in the plot. We move with the characters from incident to incident in their lives, but the emotive power comes less from plotted action and more from the characters thinking about those precise moments, small and large, that define their lives. How do you balance the need for a plot with some pathos and your desire to make visible the interior lives of your characters. Mm. 
Yeah. You know, uh, I think someone has said about the collection, it was referred to as, I think, not entirely as high praise, as, as being interested in the ordinary. Um, and I thought, oh, totally. Like, that to me feels mm -hmm. like highest praise. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, as... Um, as a writer and as a person, I, I am um, I'm very interested in the mundane, um, perhaps for no reason other than that it is what makes up life. Um, and, you know, I think stories can seem most dramatic um, in in moments of rupture. Um, but of course, you know, they consist of everything in between those ruptures as well. And so, you know, it, in these stories, I do, you know, there, there might be a story that could be summed up as, you know, the incest story, the suicide story, the, and, and yet in those stories, I, it feels important to have, you know, vomiting and masturbating take up as much space as, you know, the more shocking act of, killing yourself or something. And, and that is, to me, um, I suppose, simply true to life, that the mundane and the profound, you know, the tragic and the merely inconvenient are, you know, they're constantly jostling for time and space and meaning. Um, and I, I think of the, you know, the collisions between those planes of existence, the mundane and the profound, as as being where stories actually get made. Um, and, and more than that, where, you know, where, where something like truth gets uncovered. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it would be convenient if, if the epiphanic moments in life <laughs> always neatly coincided with, you know, our big milestones mm -hmm. and we could just browse through a photo album of, of birthdays and there you'd have it. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, the reckonings are with existence, you never escape them. And, and sometimes it's the product of coincidence. And I, and I think, you know, their fiction is quite good at, at capturing the sort of ways that inadvertent events catalyze story. You, you happen to run into somebody into a bar and, you know, millions of, of, of stories and jokes have, have there begun. Um, but I also think they're a product of, of routine and that, you know, fiction often has a more ambivalent relationship too, because why do you want to hear what somebody else is having for breakfast? Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, breakfasting can be a formative part of the day. Um, so I, I do feel, I think, a, a sort of quasi-ethical investment in trying to, um, you know, convey or, or capture on the page the way that the work of, you know, unraveling insight or or weaving insight or whatever you do with insight, it, it's never over. Um, mm, and, mm -hmm. and the narrators in this book, you know, th there are narrators who are, are youngish, but there are narrators at, at different points in life. And I don't think the older ones are any sort of further along in that process of, of insight than the younger ones. And, and in different ways, they're all sort of always on the cusp of, of, realization. Um, and I guess, you know, sort of, if we're thinking about the plot diagram here, I am drawn to the, on the cusp of not at the climax of that to me is where the sort of narrative draw is, 
is most intensely felt. Well, it certainly worked out for me. One reviewer notes about the collection that there's a wonderful distance from technological preoccupations in your stories. And what technology there is feels antiquated. Emails instead of social media, proper conversations on the telephone. This felt very purposeful to me and like an expression of our collective need for more quiet, more privacy in our personal lives. Is that something you think about in your own life and do you see it in these stories? Um, yeah, this is such a great question. And I, and I have to confess, the first time it was raised to me, I was kind of caught off guard because the truth is that the omission, at, at least the omission from the book as a whole, um, is was quite organic. And, um, but that's what it makes me all the more selfishly, I guess, all the more interested in, in what to think about it. You know, why was it something that I found myself sort of naturally averse to in the context of, um, writing and, and, and what do these technologies fail to capture if they do fail to capture something, you know, that I'm trying to get at with fiction. Um, and, and one answer, I think, is that at least in my own life, you know, social media very often um, interrupts narrative. You know, I, I notice it as the thing that I do to fill in gaps. Yes, um, that's so true. And, and social media can be very immersive, you know, but it, but it also in, in quite an avoidant way, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> as I practice it. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> me too. And, and yeah, and it's interesting you know, I, I'm curious about that even at a formal level, you know, to sort of think about, like, is the infinite scroll compatible or incompatible with the idea of discrete narrative? Um, you know, we've sort of gotten accustomed in a tactile sense to, like, the endless flow of stories. If you're somebody who's trying to make a very bounded story, you know, what what assumptions are we now working with or trying to undo Um you know, a, a similar question is like, what does instantaneity mean for intimacy? Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say they're at odds always, even if, you know, there's certainly a certain Luddite in me that wants to say they're at odds. Um, and I don't think they are, but I think it, you know, it does make a difference. Um, you mentioned earlier the moment in Old Hope where, um, you know, an email gets deleted. And in that story, um, the, the narrative is very much structured around emails, though, you know, it actually might be more precise to say that it's structured around the gap between emails. Mm -hmm. And that is something that's a little bit harder to capture with, say, text messages where, you know, the gap gets smaller and smaller. Um, it, you know, I, the project I'm currently working on is actually written in, in letters. Um, and what's more, letters mm -hmm. that don't actually ever get sent. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of, of where my old-fashioned allegiances lie. But but it's, you know, I, I find myself very often tempted to say social media is boring. And I think that that is fundamentally a defensive verdict and a sort of conservative one. And I feel actually quite interested in, or, or I aspire to be more curious about the place of social media in the novel. Um, you know, I think there was a time and not even so long ago, maybe only, you know, five years ago where, you know, to see a G chat or whatever it was at the time rendered in a novel would sort of produce instant revulsion in me and feel like, Oh, how dare they go there? Um, and you know, now I think there's a novel out just this month that's written entirely in Slack messages. And there, there is 
something that, that sounds wants- terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's maybe or maybe not. And, no, and it's true. Yeah. I, I, I do. Um, I think there are patterns of thought that are not at all exclusive to social media that the experience actually can illuminate for us. And, you know, a good example of this, I will at my own risk wade very um, tentatively into the Sally Rooney discourse. Mm -hmm. She actually has some very interesting examples of, um, you know, as I see it, her approach is, is trying to defamiliarize these habits that have become so second nature to us. You know, the very tactile opening a browser, Xing out of a window. We see all that on the page. And I think, I think there is a role that fiction can play in sort of elucidating for us what is happening there in these, you know, strange worlds that we all disappear into for astonishing periods each day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, even I, I, I was thinking the other day about the phrase um, going down a rabbit hole. And what we mean by that is like we got somewhere and we don't we don't know how we got from here to there. And in some sense, you know, that is the, in a very distilled way, the job of narrative. You know, we, we want to explain here to there. And so I feel there is some role, you know, maybe even some responsibility for fiction to, you know, wrestle with this. There was an article um, going around this week that said that um, Gen Zers are having considerably less sex in the, you know, younger adolescent years. Mm. And someone hilariously tweeted that it's it's very difficult to have sex with a phone in one hand. So um, <laughs> that may just be a, a, a kind of crass sense of what's lost in terms of the intimacy. But I agree that perhaps an open mind as to how these you know, very real elements of our story lives are the very real narratives that we in, you know, immerse ourselves in is probably necessary for having a, um, mm. an understanding of their importance to stories, to novels, um, and to our own lives. Yeah. Um, when I spoke recently with Rebecca Mackay, who's known principally for her novels, but who is herself a major figure in the world of short, short fiction, she spoke about the difficulties of publishing collections. She thinks that it's principally the lack of a cohesive narrative with which to describe what a collection is about. I feel like Objects of Desire has a strong and contiguous contiguous narrative that sews together the stories, but I'd love to hear if you tried to craft it as such and what the driving narrative force is to you. Well, I'm, I'm glad it cohered for you. Um, I always, always appreciate that feedback. Um, it is, you know, there was a phase when I would tell people I was working on a collection of stories and they, it was at a time I now can't exactly think what the examples of this genre would have been, but where linked stories were very sort of um, fashionable and people would say, oh, are they linked stories? And I would have this urge to say, well, yes, of course. Um, And, you know, they're not in the sense that um, we typically mean it. There are not recurring characters or, you know, strands that get um, uh, left off and picked up. Um, but there does feel to me, and, and perhaps just because, you know, these stories were written by one person in a relatively short um, period of time in the scheme of things, that, that they share a kind of set of preoccupations. The You know, I, I tend to write about things that 
I can't stop thinking about. Um, and writing in that sense does have a sort of obsessive quality. You know, I'm, I'm circling something, I'm questioning something, I'm trying to get at something. And, you know, the question is, well, one way to say the question you were asking is what's the something. And, you know, that's the question I ask myself, um, quite frequently. Um, and you know, if I, if I had, the answer in some ways, well, I wouldn't write 11 stories. Um, and, and so I think more than a single theme, my hope is that there is uh, sort of precisely that strain of questioning and that urgency of needing to know something more fully or more complexly um, that is coming through in each of the stories. Because I, I do, I have a sense of sort of having bequeathed or burdened um, a lot of my characters with a similar impulse to at at whether they're at the beginning of adulthood or in the midst of it, um, you know, be getting to the bottom of questions that, quite frankly, they aren't going to get to the bottom of. Yeah, and 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 that type of questioning, I do think, emerges in in part from the kind of cloistered or, or self-conscious feeling that, that some of these characters experience. Um, you know, the, the sort of elevator pitch I would give for the book, which, well, luckily is a thing you don't actually have to give for a book, but um, was that it was sort of all about loneliness. Um, mm. and, and I think that's true to some extent. A lot of these characters feel a sense of, of disconnection or isolation, but, but I also, I think, have come to feel that that's not really precise enough. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I kind of want to know what, well, what are the effects of solitude and interiority that I, that I'm especially drawn to? And I think one answer, and I, I have the feeling it's probably a maddeningly vague answer, but that there is something about the texture of aloneness that is, you know, at once it's a narrowness and an expansiveness. Um, and to be locked in your own life is, you know, as we all inevitably are, is, is really claustrophobic. And yet, you know, the terrain of consciousness is also an entire universe. And I think there is something about that paradox about kind of charting the terror, the scope of the self, the size of the world, trying to navigate what exactly the distance between them is. I think that's somehow at, a, at, a, at the heart of um, a lot of these stories. I think Richard Feynman would be very excited with that answer <laughs> and thinking about the kind of galactic possibilities of the imagination, but also the claustrophobia of the self. But I think that's a wonderful yes. answer. Sci-fi sci is up next for me. So. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so your day job is as an editor at The New Yorker, a literary yes. magazine with a, a very distinct house style for its long form essays and its short fiction. Did you find yourself being influenced by that style as you worked on this collection? Yes. Yeah, so I have a, a truly wonderful day job um, that I feel lucky to have all the time. Um, I, you know, it mostly involves working with um, our critics. And, and one of the joys of that is is coming into contact with such a wide variety of, of voice. It's, it's one of the places in the magazine where I think, um, you know, the, the distinctive tenor of different write, writers is, is not only, not only um, legible, but is really precisely the point. Um, and, you know, one of the tasks of one of the quite difficult tasks of editing criticism is that you, you really want to ensure and, and protect that voice and make sure that it is not muted or thwarted or, um, and so I think, in some ways, the, the task of editing has has increased my my sort of appreciation for the, um, 
you know, very fragile distinctiveness of each type of voice, you know, well, you can sort of discover moving words around on the pages, like it's, it's, it's shockingly difficult to cultivate a voice. And it's shockingly easy to just sort of flatten it. Hmm. Um, oh, that's and, really interesting. Yeah. And, and the, and the um, I, I think above all, it is, you know, I, I have at different moments in my writing career, if we want to call it that, you know, deluded myself into thinking like I'm a very good self editor and, and there's no, you know, more sinister or silly myth. Um, and so <laughs> I, I think the, that's the, what I try and tell my students anyway, <laughs> I'm going to use um, sinister myth as the uh, description of it in the future. <laughs> Um, yes, this is obviously a self-serving narrative from um, one side of the desk that I sit <laughs> on. Um, but, you know, the, the attention to the process and um, just an awareness of how much attention it, it does require is um, is something that I don't think I would um, fully realize or as sort of constant re- realize as I do um, given the fact that that I have this other this other way of having my hand in the writing pot. As a kind of like sidebar um, to this question, are you at all excited about the new Wes Anderson film, um, The French <laughs> Dispatch, which is supposedly loosely based on the founding days of The New Yorker? Um, yes, it looks super fun. Um, my, my greatest embarrassment um, actually is that I almost never go to the movies. Um, and now I, I could and maybe should have just dodged your question without saying that, but, um, but yeah, it is, it's an interesting, um, well, this came up briefly in, in, in one of the book talks I did right after publication where someone observed to me that a lot of the stories feel very uncinematic and I didn't say, but could have said it's because I don't watch any movies. Um, but this, one look, um this one does look very fun. So yeah, well, and and you know, during the pandemic, nobody goes to the movies anyway. So you're 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 amongst good company per- now. Yes, the perfect alibi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, because the ordering of any collection is so crucial to how the reader approaches each individual story, I'd love to hear how you decided on the order. In particular, I was struck by what an incredibly sad note you leave us on with the end of the collection. Kate, the protagonist of that story, Separation, works through separations large and small, the death of her husband, the daily work of separating children from their parents at a nursery school, her disconnection from her own body, and finally her daughter leaving home for good. It reads as a reckoning with how fragile our lives are together— but with an acknowledgement that the more we recognize this, the more painful it will be. Why did you decide to leave us with such existential sorrow? Uh, well, you know, because that's all we're ever um, um, You know, Kate is, I, I do think of this story as being quite different from the other stories in the collection, which is maybe one place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Kate is the character in this book, um, you know, who we watch over the longest period of time. Um, but it's also true that she's the character who writers um, 
are probably experienced most discontinuously. You know, there are enormous chunks of her life that are just totally left out of the story. Many years pass between one scene and the next. And I hope, nevertheless, that it feels for readers like a coherent story. Um, You know, at least in part because in a very literal way, it's a coherent story for Kate, you know, for all the rupture and loss that she's experienced or that anyone experiences. um, You know, some element of coherence is simply a fact. Um, You only get one life. It's singular. It's whole, you know, even when it's impossible to make sense of, um, you know, each lifetime is a very clearly um, bounded structure. And I think sort of that that paradox between the fact of coherence and the often quite distressing feeling of incoherence is part of what, you know, I'm after in the story. And, and, and maybe another way of thinking about that is like separation, as you say, is the story's title. And and we glimpse Kate at some of her most painful moments of, um, you know, disconnection or divestment. Um, and, Even so, I think, you know, in seeing these moments arranged and arranged, we should say, totally artificially, Mm. um, we see the the sort of paradoxical truth that as inevitable as separation is, um, it's equally inevitable that uh, you can't ever really leave anything behind. Um, And, and, you know, we see that in sort of repetitions in Kate's own life and resonances that are sort of handed down in a strange way from one generation to another. Um, and I, I don't, I hope that the story doesn't feel tidy in that sense, but that it sort of, um, evokes a, a dissonant feeling between the real patterning of our lives that I think, especially as a fiction writer, I feel attuned to and invested in. And also the, um, you know, the more familiar feeling probably to us, which is of, you know, the chaos of, of everyday life. Mm -hmm. Well, I I mean, I I love the story. And so, you know, the, the feeling of ending on, you know, a sense of sadness, but also like being able to see a a little bit more of the fullness um, of a life Mm -hmm. over ages was very satisfying to me. Um, But it is, I I think it is an unusual choice as a, as an ending story. Um, And were you thinking that it would resonate with the beginning stories um, and sort of call our mind back? Um, Were there other ordering decisions that you made that you feel like are crucial to the collection? Mm. Um, I, I found the, the ordering was something that I was um, essentially agonizing about until the very last moment. It, it, it's funny, it occurred to me in, in some of my moments of agony that, you know, now that the um, now that the CD has become obsolete, you know, we are and the curated playlist has sort of taken its place there. The short story table of contents is one of the few places where you are sort of told as a reader, you know, read through it like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here is my, um, you know, of course, technically optional, but, you know, prescribed cadence. Um, and, uh, you know, there are certain choices and, and certain, you know, adjacencies that felt intentional. But I would have to say that I think the main thing that I found myself telling myself most frequently in, in, in the process was to basically suspend my 
assumptions or projections or expectations of how people would be consuming the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think most people read books start to finish. Um, but, you know, even putting aside the order that they read it in, you know, what would their reaction be to certain resonances if placed in this order or that order? Um, you know, there is at the especially to me in the packaging of a book, um, you know, a real sort of leap of faith and yeah, negative capability that is required in, um, you know, accepting that you will not be there when somebody opens the book and mm-hmm. finishes each story. And, <laughs> and, you know, sometimes nice podcasters will let you explain what you meant to do. But, <laughs> but there's a lot of times where you just have to um, accept that, that the readerly experience is necessarily a private one that has nothing to do with you. That's very true. Um, I, I would love to know the collections of short fiction that have influenced you as a writer of the form, as well as those that are more newly published and which you admire and think maybe deserve our attention. Yeah. Um, oh, it's sort of too boring to say, but Alice Monroe was the first short story writer that I ever became obsessed with. And Alice Monroe you know, is never boring. So. <laughs> She is truly never boring. Um, there is, uh, yeah, you know, the day the book was published, I decided, oh, I'll just, I'll just go read some Alice Munro. Um, hmm. And, and, yeah, I, I, there's no way to go wrong. Um, my personal, I guess, where I, I tend to steer people first is to run away, um, which has some of my favorite stories in it. I think the other sort of earliest collection that I think of as as being um, like truly canonical to my idea of what a collection should strive to be. Is Jesus' son, also an an unoriginal but um, indispensable choice. Um, More recently, I think the the newest collection that was truly breathtaking to me is this book called A Shock, or maybe it's called The Shock, by Keith Ridgway. Um, And actually, it may be billed as a novel, come to think of it, but an excellent example of linked stories that are... um, linked in very sort of subtle and provocative ways. And it's just um, the, you know, I, I sometimes take pleasure in, in feeling that my own collection has a kind of continuity in, in theme and voice, as we've talked about. And I actually think the far greater achievement is to have really varied voice in a collection. And this one has that. Hmm. So I, I would steer people in that direction. Um an old, um, you know, just this year, um, Shirley Hazard's collected stories came out. Um, and, and she is, I would say, better as a novelist than as a short story writer, but they're all truly great. Um, She's having a real, uh, a real return yeah. to, to force. Oh, and, and, and so deserved, in my opinion. Um, and and the, the short stories are kind of fun because unlike, you know, Transit of Venus to me is kind of unimpeachably great. And there's stuff that's fun to quibble with in the short stories. So, um, And next on my list, which I haven't read yet, is um, Yoon Choi's collection Skinship, which everyone keeps giving me. And so it is sitting here on my bedside table. Um, I see that all over the place. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Well, those sound fabulous, and I think it's always a good idea to return to Alice Munro, um, you know, at least once a year. But this has been such a nice conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time with me today, Claire. The pleasure's been all mine. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Have a great day. That's all for our show today. 
My great thanks to Claire Sestanovich, whose recommendations will be linked to on our website at burnedbybooks.com. And as always, to the listeners of this podcast, your continued support keeps me excited to find new guests and new books to introduce you to. If you have a moment, please check out our webpage where you can buy the books featured on the show and learn more about the authors. Please rate us on iTunes and Spotify as those five-star ratings draw new listeners and help me attract new guests. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Thank you.